Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, prior to researching this episode, what what would occupy your mind? What visuals would, would stream into your consciousness when someone uttered the words Stonehenge? Spinal Tap. Yeah? Of course, yeah. yeah. You're a yeah. Big, big Spinal Tap fan from back in the day? Uh, I wouldn't say I was a big Spinal Tap fan, but mm-hmm. just like everybody else, you know, that's permeated the, the fabric of the culture that I experience. So yeah. for me, Stonehenge, yeah, definitely Spinal Tap. But also, you know, this sort of mysterious groupings of rocks in the hinterland. Uh, now, the, with Spinal Tap, you're referring to a particular scene, right, where there there's dancing. There's dancing. There's a stage scene. But there also is some... Um, some Stonehenge philosophy flying about <laughs> with some of the members of the band who yeah. are talking about the reason for it is its existence. Okay. Yeah. And that is kind of the big question um, that we're going to get into in, in this pair of episodes. What is Stonehenge? Like, why is it there? How is it built? These are all these these mysteries uh, that, that sort of uh, uh, swirl around it. And it's easy to sort of stand outside of the discussion of those mysteries and just sort of pick up uh, contact information and contact ideas about mm-hmm. it. And I feel like that's what I've done mostly throughout my life, is I've never really been that interested in Stonehenge, so I've only just sort of picked up little bits here and there. Uh, I've certainly never been there, uh, and I've just heard things about UFOs, about aliens. Right. And, I, and I never really bought into that, but that's just kind of the, the, the coloring that the subject has taken on for me. It's just sort of a, a an, an abstract... Uh, collage of UFOs and ancient aliens and pagan priests like sacrificing goats and wearing goat animals. I don't know why the goats are so involved in it for me, but but yeah, just sort of a general vision of that kind of stuff without me ever really thinking all that much. Well, what we're going to try to do today is we're going to talk about sort of the nuts and bolts of Stonehenge because we can't really understand the meaning of it or, or all these theories about why it exists in the first place without actually looking at the building of it, which is in itself Fascinating. So, uh, again, think about this megalith structure mm-hmm. and this mysterious pile of rocks. And mostly people kind of came up with, as you say, these sort of uh, theories of well, it could be aliens. It could be, uh, you know, a celestial observatory. But in order to really get to the meat of it, you have to sit there and say, how in the world was this erected in the first place? It's insane. Yes. And before we get into this sort of bird's eye view of the complete structure, what it would have looked like in its heyday, I wanted to mention that Stonehenge finally has its own visitor center. Oh, really? Yeah. It took that long? That long. I mean, huh. it, it, it has something like a million visitors a year. No visitor center. Well, it's, which means no bathrooms, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming. Yeah, and I'm thinking peahenge yeah. is what I'm thinking. You can't just squat behind the uh, yeah <laughs> behind the stones. Yeah, pop a squat hinge. Oh, all right. So the basics. Where is it? Obviously, it's in the United Kingdom. It is. It is in the plains of Salisbury, England, and we'll get more to why it actually is probably at that specific location. Um, but it's a, a nice sort of like grassy looking area if you look at all the photos, and of course, it's circled by highways. Yeah. Because as some people will complain, the monument just hasn't had enough respect over the centuries for mm. people to understand that perhaps it's, it's it means much more to us than we realize about these sort of life and death rituals and what it means to be humans. But instead, here you have this little byway cutting through around it. 
Yeah, for the longest, it was just kind of a big pile of stones. It really wasn't until the 17th century or so that people started really getting a little more serious about trying to figure out what it meant, what it meant, uh, how it was built, and and really giving it the importance that it's due. Yeah. All right. So let's give a, a little view of it in its final form. Stonehenge had a path leading to a circular ditch, creating a bank of earth. This is the hinge part, by the way. Okay. So if you hear that word hinge, hinge. it's referring to this sort of uh, circular structure that's made. And if you pass the heelstone, uh, you would have noticed a ring of 56 pits just within the ditch and in, in the um, circumference of it. And these are like post hole ditches, like little round ditches, right? Exactly. Yes. But they're empty at this point. We'll get to why that is. Two stone pillars would have flanked the entrance in a sarsen circle. These sarsen stones composed of these huge upright stones about 18 feet high and 7 feet thick. They were set in an outer ring about 100 feet across. Now, today, only 17 of these megaliths are standing, and you have a few 10-and-a-half-foot lintels spanning the tops of these. At one point, they had, um, I believe they were called trilithons, five of these trilithons at the center. There are only three of them right now. Now, within this was a horseshoe of blue stones around a pillar known as, at, at that time, an altar stone, because it was thought that this perhaps is where a sacrifice would have happened. This is where occurred. the goats would have been cut. Exactly. Yeah. And then a banked path would have led from Stonehenge to the river Avon. Yes, and the, that's important to note, too, that, that it is adjacent to a river, and that's going to be more and more important as we, we get on. Uh, but in the same way that highways enable humans to visit it today, uh, proximity to a river would have been important in Neolithic times. Yeah, because it was thought that around 2500 B.C., a tenth of the population would have actually traveled here to Stonehenge for various reasons that we'll get into later. So this wasn't just a sort of, as we think of it, as a, a drive-by tourist attraction. Right. This was a this was a destination. This mm-hmm. is where you went. Yeah. Yeah, this was sort of like the the first Las Vegas rising from the landscape, you know, <laughs> sort of out in the middle of nowhere. If you build it, people will come. That's another movie, but you know yeah. what I'm saying. But uh, no, the, the comparison to Las Vegas is is very apt because we're talking about, on a very simple level, man-made structures that are rising above the landscape. And it's really uh, today that's nothing. But it's uh, but it's interesting to to think back to a to a Neolithic world and imagine the uh, the power of that. I mean really you have to you have to think of like the the monoliths in in uh, in uh, 2001 to kind of get the same sort of power. Of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and let's talk about what it might have been like 5000 years ago during this Neolithic age. We're talking about before wheeled vehicles, uh before the use of metals and tools were widespread. Um but you did have the stone axe here. This yes. is this is uh, in full force and people used it to clear forests and shape the timbers of their homes. We're talking about small settlements that are scattered and people who are keeping livestock and they move with their herds and they raise barley and wheat. So um, one picture that comes out of this is that this is these are people who have a lot of resources in terms of food. Yeah. And so we know that one of their basic needs are being met. So it would make sense that they begin to really focus on other things beyond, like perhaps what Stonehenge means to them and, you know, is it this burial ground and so on and so forth. Because as we'll go forward, you'll see that Stonehenge was a mega project. Certainly for these people, 
this was a mega project. And you have to have space in one's life to do that. You have to have certain <laughs> needs have to be met. You know, it's like taking on an enormous hobby in your life. If you're going to, say, build a ship in a bottle, you probably want to wait till the house is a little calm, you know, till the till at least some of the kids are old enough to not uh, break it or demand all of your uh, spare energy. Yeah, this would be like the Neolithic people's me time or their yoga time. Yeah. They probably would have uh, devoted it to this. And I wanted to read this great quote. You and I were talking about this earlier. It's, um, it's from Colin Richards. He's a professor of world prehistory history, archaeology at the University of Manchester. And he says, Stonehenge is an expenditure of labor on a grand scale. It's easy for us to forget that these people were creating something which had never been created before. It's a bit like their own space program. Yeah, and that inevitably brings me back to our conversations with uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, who spoke about the actual space program and its existence as a mega project on scale with something like Stonehenge, with Mm -hmm. something like the pyramids, uh, with something like uh, uh, the Great Wall of China. And you have to ask yourself, what motivates people to do that sort of thing? Well, yeah, and and that's a great point that you make, because if you're talking about the space program, then you are talking about generations of people who are trying to move this agenda forward. Yeah. If you were talking about the Neolithic period in Stonehenge, then you are talking about 5,000 years, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, you're talking about a 1,500-year period in which Stonehenge was built over in three phases. And moreover, you are talking about these uh, pine posts initially being erected at that site 10,500 years ago. Yeah. So that long ago, people had an idea of what this site might mean to them and what it could become. Yes. And we'll get more into the meaning as we, we progress. But again, we really need to, to lay the groundwork about the construction of it and the, the, the physical characteristics of it to truly appreciate it. Yeah. And, and just to give everybody context, too, um, this is not the only henge hanging around in, mm-hmm. in the U.K. There are about a thousand other stone circles that can be found um, and a lot of timber circles, too. In fact, uh, you have some timber circles which may have reached 15 feet high. And so these sort of monuments could have been a burial ground for the dead, or it could have been families, prominent families in those areas, just raising this, uh, the, these monuments to themselves, essentially. Right. But Stonehenge is different in this way, because, again, it's drawing people from all over the area, as opposed to just being this localized phenomenon. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back... More on Stonehenge. All right, we are back, and we're going to talk about this ultimate remodeling project, 1,500 years in the making. And uh, if anybody is interested in looking at this in detail, you can check out the English Heritage Stonehenge site. And these are actually the people who are responsible for bringing the visitor center or visitor center to fruition. But they have some really great information about what this construction might have looked like, what would have been built first. Yeah, this is a uh, this is really key, and it's so, certainly something that I feel like you don't pick up on when you're just sort of doing the sort of usual pop culture uh, absorption of Stonehenge info. You just think, oh well, at some point, some dudes thought, hey, let's erect some stones, let's build this shape for whatever purpose, and they just did it, not realizing that what you're seeing is um, is a, is a design that that evolves over time, that a construction that takes ages to complete. Yeah, and again, we're talking about the the sort of technology that they have available to them at that time. Mm-hmm. We're talking about antlers to dig ditches with. Yes. And um, these hammer stones that they would have held in their hands to, to try to actually shape the stones. 
and to cut down timber and so on and so forth. But because the, yeah, they got the stones there, and then you still had to uh, to to work on them to get them in uh, to, to to just the desired uh, correct shape, and then to make sure they're fitting in with the other uh, stones. Oh yeah, we'll talk about yeah. that in a second too. This tongue and groove. It's yes. amazing to look at and say, oh, I cannot believe that this was constructed during that time period, and, and you start to think about the depth and breadth of that effort over over so many. You know, thousands of years, it's pretty amazing. So, okay, 10,500 years ago, you get those timber posts put up that kind of say X marks the spot. Now, if you look at about 3000 BC, you'll see that that hinge, that's when that was uh, beginning to be built. Again, we're talking about the antler, they're scraping this away. And that earth was piled up to make this inner and outer bank. And then within the ditch, that's where this ring of 56 timber or stone posts would have been. Now, it's thought that those stone posts held the original bluestones that were later moved to the middle. Yes. And, and that was really eye-opening to me as well, the, the idea that you had this sort of temporary design that was there for a while, and then the, the, all the stones were moved in, and then that's where we get those holes. They weren't, as one might think, bathrooms. No, that's right. I mean, that's the other thing, is that if you take this information and just take it at face value, of course you would come up with a million different theories as to why they were doing what they were doing. Mm -hmm. And it really is the accumulation of history, as well as our own current technology that kind of gives us a better idea of how it was constructed and why it was constructed. Um, But yeah, about 500 years later after this henge was made, the sarsen stones, those huge stones were brought in, and then the blue stones were, were moved inside. And then later you have parallel banks that were constructed as a kind of road from Stonehenge to the River Avon. Yes. And this wasn't apparent really until I, I think it was about 2010 when researchers, uh, Mark Pearson and his team were taking some surveys and they could tell um, by the equipment that they were using, that there was actually this road that was dug out underneath uh, the landscape. Yeah, it was really interesting um, hearing him talk because, as he pointed out, like there was a huge boom of a Stonehenge you know, interest in the 17th century. So people got pretty interested in the site uh, early on, and they were they were digging it up, they were they were looking everything. So so the the site itself was pretty thoroughly examined mm-hmm. uh, you know by, by the time we got to the the 20th century but it's in it's in exploring the uh, realms surrounding Stonehenge looking at in this uh, in this case at the space between Stonehenge and the river mm-hmm. and as we'll discuss later looking at some other sites uh, within uh, close proximity to Stonehenge that ends up uh, giving us a lot more understanding about what Stonehenge was about yeah, and the other thing is that, uh, you know, now we have the technology to look at those sarsen stones and say, okay, well, not only are they a type of sandstone and they're harder than granite, but hey, they're found scattered all over southern England, and most archaeologists believe that these stones were brought from marble downs about 20 miles away. And then, if you think about this, it's kind of nuts. On average, these sarsens weigh about 45 tons each. I think the heel stone is like 50 tons. Yeah, these things were enormous. Yeah, and then you have the the blue stones look kind of are puny in comparison because we're talking about two and five tons each. That's what they weigh about. Um, but those came from the Preseli Hills in southwest Wales, 155 miles away. Now, it's worth noting that these blue stones, you'll see a picture of them, and you you may think to yourself, well, that, does, that doesn't really look blue. Well, they, they're called blue stones because when they're they're nice and wet, they have kind of a blue sheen to mm-hmm. them, and if you cut into them, they, there's kind of a, a, an appearance of blue. But, yeah, they're not like Smurf blue by any means. Unfortunately. 
now, there was this idea that these bluestones could have been brought to the Salisbury Plains area by the movement of glaciers, but at this point, most archaeologists think that they were actually transported by human effort, and uh, it's not re- known exactly how this was. Um, probably they were carried via water networks or and or hauled over land, and there's a couple of ideas of, about how they could have been hauled over land, especially those 45-ton ones. Yeah, one of the theories that's explored in the uh, the Nova special, Secrets of Stonehenge, which you can find online and watch, it's uh, it's, it's really good. One of the ideas that they explore in that video is the idea that you have uh, you have all of these uh, little, almost uh, palm sized uh, uh, stone spheres. Mm-hmm. Okay, and you find them. Um, so a lot of them are just rough and, and un unpolished, you know, and then others seem to have some, some monochrome of design. Yeah, in, some in are form. ornate. Yeah, yeah, but they're all about the same size. Like like. Like uh, almost uh, with, I mean, with a degree of precision that is uh, suspicious, and uh, so one of the theories is that is that these were used as ball bearings, uh, so that you could uh, you could move a platform uh, across uh, tracks with those bear those ball bearings underneath them, uh, and is a way to move the stone across uh, across the ground. What I love about this is that this was the idea that sprang out of Andrew Young's brain. He was doing graduate work at the University of Exeter, and mm-hmm. he was obsessed with these these stone-carved balls. And he actually started to yeah. take up the practice himself and do it over and over again. And he had that moment of, like, why, why are the ones that are found the same diameter? We're talking to the millimeter. And that's yeah. when he had his aha moment of, well, you need uniformity in design when you're trying to make something work, if you're trying to make... Uh, make it useful. And that actually was something that panned out for him because he, and I believe it was Pearson's team, I mean, might be wrong I about so. that, mm-hmm. um, but they actually reenacted this and, and they got some of the larger stones and the smaller stones to work on this track platform with these sort of ball bearings carrying the stones across or sliding the stones across. Yeah, they had a few missteps along the way, like possibly the type of wood they were using, but for the most part, it proved true. Yeah. yeah. And now there's a possibility that people may have laid a path of tree trunks and rolled the stones over them um, or even just had wooden tracks slathered with with uh, grease as a means to try to move them across. It's it's hard to say. Maybe all of these scenarios are true, that the span of time yeah. uh, in which this was built would give possibility to, to any one of these theories. Yeah. It, you keep coming back to this uh it's one of the big problems about about Stonehenge is that you ultimately have to try and put yourself in the mindset of uh, of, of Neolithic man and try and understand not only how a, a Neolithic human would approach a physics problem, a design uh, challenge, but how they would they approach the cosmos itself, how they approach their entire view of the world. And we'll see more of that in the uh, the second episode that uh, explores the uh, the meaning of Stonehenge. Mm-hmm. But but even in just the the purely practical uh, physical challenge of construction, you you have people just having to, to think, well, well, how would they how would they view this? How would how would unwieldy uh, humans uh, analyze this problem and attempt to solve it? Yeah, what were their resources? What were their abilities at that time? And what is the evidence mm-hmm. that that supports some of these theories? And that's what's is so nice about that Nova documentary, The Secrets of Stonehenge, is it really does build a case uh, for not only how it was built, but why it was built. Um, but first, let's get to that shaping of the stones. We talked about those hammer stones. We're talking about more than 50 hammer stones that have been found at the Stonehenge site. And we, again, when we talk about these hammer stones, we're talking about these um, 
stones that fit in the palm of the hand, mm-hmm. and they have evidence of chipping away at other stones. Yeah, like lots of chips that came off of the stones as they were uh, they were doing the fine work on it. Yeah, that repeated striking. There's a mm-hmm. lot of pitting in there. So they would have been used not only to sculpt the stones, but also to create this sort of tongue and groove joint system, which is amazing to me when you see these these up-close pictures of the joints going together. Now, obviously, describing something like this can be a bit of a challenge uh, in a podcast. But uh, essentially, you want to imagine, first of all, the, those vertical stones. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then you're going to put those lintels on top. You're going to, to cap those stones to create this elevated um, uh, ring of stones, right? Okay. So this is that kind of uh, iconic trilithon sculpture that you see with the two uprights and then the one capping the very top. Right. Okay. So you have the, the little pieces that uh, that form the the, the lintel. Okay, mm-hmm. think of uh, if you have, ever have like a kid's uh, railroad railroad track, you know, mm-hmm. where you you have the different curved pieces and you stick them together and it forms a circle for the little train to go mm-hmm. around. All right, so each of those little bits of track come together, and 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 in this uh, case, they're going to come together on the top of the vertical stone. Okay, so yeah, this is so if you're looking at this from a bird's eye perspective, imagine this circle of these lentils that are topping the upright stones, and they're all tongue and grooved, so they've got that kind of like snaky, sinewy line going through that fits perfectly together. I mean, we are talking about level within inches here. Yes. And then those actual upright stones that are supporting the lentils, those have stone cap, like these little stone balls. Yeah, like bumps. Uh, kind of, I, I think in terms of Legos and the way that yes. Legos interact. Yeah. There's like a bump and then the bump goes into a hole. Yes. And it's easy to miss that. You look at Stonehenge and if you just, you, you don't, if you don't absorb any of the actual info about it, you think, oh, well, look, there are two rocks and then somebody, some caveman or something just stuck another rock balanced on top. No, it's fitted. Right, and then someone just bumped into it, and that's why the other one's full. Yeah. Oh. No, you're right. It's it's a uh, it's got this little rock sort of sculpture on top, rounded, and then you have the lentil, which is hollowed out to fit perfectly over it. Again, they're using hammer stones to do this. It's insane. Now, if that seems crazy, you also have to look at one of the other, perhaps less obvious questions. You have this giant stone, all right. And you want to, and it's just laying on the ground, or it's laying on some, uh, some, you know, a greased piece of wood, or on some, some, uh, some logs, or whatever. You've got, you've, you've managed to transport it all the way to the site. How are you going to get that thing up and make it vertical? <laughs> it's, it's a, uh, you're talking tons and tons of rock here. It's not a simple matter of uh, just, oh, we'll just roll some more, some more logs under it, and it'll eventually stand up. Yeah, I mean, you have to use counterweight essentially, and people would dig a large hole with a sloping side. And then the back of the hole would be lined with a row of wooden stakes, right? And then the stone was then moved into position and hauled upright using plant fiber ropes mm-hmm. and, and probably a wooden A-frame. And then weights may have been used to help tip the stones upright. So, again, you've got the, the counterweight idea. And that hole would have been packed with a bunch of rubble, too, to keep all of that secure in there. It's just a little bit crazy to think about this. Yeah, and then you still have to raise uh, the, the lintel portion of it. You've got to get, yeah. you gotta get uh, those stones up, the the horizontal ones that are atop the vertical ones. And uh, that's a whole different situation that can, in, they, they believe probably uh, involve using timber platforms. Yep. Yep, to raise the horizontal lintels into place, first yeah. of all, and then just kind of make sure they're all hooked in there in that tongue and groove system. Yeah, and then you got to do some fine-tuning on top of that just to make sure that everything's lining up. And then... Then you're set for centuries, for thousands of years. <laughs> That's right. It's quite a barn raising, yeah. actually. All right. So there you have it. Stonehenge is built. And, you know, through through all of this, though, 
I'm imagining people working on this. I'm imagining uh, Neolithic uh, men and women uh, just you know pounding uh, with their stone tools to shape these things, or or painstakingly erecting the, this this stone. And I'm just imagining one of these dudes just poking his head up and saying, "Why are we doing this again? What? Why are we devoting?" All of our free time to constructing this this thing that I may not live to see completed. Well, I think that's the thing that's so intriguing about it because you wish you just wish that you could go back in time and hear some of the stories and the mythology and and, and just the reasons for for why they were doing this. Because um, I imagine that it's some very rich storytelling in keeping this uh, this monument not only just erecting it but adding to it over you know a fifteen hundred year period. That's a very strong and compelling story that was told. Yeah. And so, in the next episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, we will get into the whys. We'll get into the theories uh, regarding, and, and really the, the strong theory that we have now regarding why they did this to begin with. Plot spoiler. Aliens. <laughs> there you go. Sorry. That's it. That's yeah. like a, it's a one-second episode, the next one. <laughs> Aliens. All right. Well, hey, in the meantime, if you want to reach out to us, uh, let us know about your experiences with Stonehenge. Be they in-person experiences? Have you visited Stonehenge? Uh, and, and if so, what were your thoughts about it? How did it, did it? Did the site have a really profound impact on you, or was it just kind of, eh, stone? Uh, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us uh, all the usual places. StuffToBlowYourMind.com is the mothership. That's where all of our stuff is. You want to find our blogs? Go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. You want to find our videos? Go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. You want to find anything else we're doing, as well as links out to our social media accounts, Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, Google+, SoundCloud, YouTube, you name it, all the links are there at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's right. Do it to it. And if you want to send us an email, you can do so at BlowTheMindAtDiscovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 